Welcome to Tech on Reg, the podcast that explores all things at the intersection of law, technology, and high regulated industry. We're talking fintech, regtech, sextech, and more with thought leaders and entrepreneurs from around the world to share insights, trade viewpoints, and get us all thinking about responsible innovation. And here is your host, Dara Tukowski. Hello, everyone. Welcome to the new fall season of Tech on Reg. I'd like to say before we get started today, I really appreciate everyone's patience while the show has been on a little summer break. And when I say the show has been on a little summer break, I really mean Dara's been on a little summer break. Uh, So I appreciate everyone's patience while I spent a few extra uh, weeks with my little ones. Um, And also wanted to thank again for the new fall season to my sponsor, BAI. If you haven't checked out some of the really interesting content that BAI is putting out recently, definitely visit BAI.org. So I am super jazzed to start the fall season with one of my favorite returning guests on a subject that I am not only deeply passionate about um, as an attorney, but also really deeply passionate about as a woman. So returning to the show is Dominique Kuretsos, CEO of Healthy Pleasure Group and general partner at Amboy Street Ventures. Welcome back to the show, Dominique. Oh, thanks, Dara. It's wonderful to be back. And I'm, I'm so glad to hear I'm your favorite. I'll take it while I can. <laughs> I, no, I'm, you know, I, I, I don't want I'm not trying to, I'm not trying to make my other guests jealous. So like other guests <laughs> listening to the show, I'm not, I'm not, I'm not dissing, I'm not dissing you, but Dominique is... You know, I really enjoy getting a little break from talking about all of like the financial services stuff and all of the we're we're don't get me wrong, we're gonna nerd out on this show, but it's like a degree less nerdy than the things that I normally spend my days talking about. Um, We get to talk about sex, tax, and money, the three most powerful things in the world, right? I I, and it you know, it's particularly satisfying to talk about those things as a woman. (laughs) So I before we jump right in, I'm going to do a little bit of fangirling about Dominique here. Um, so the last time we spoke to Dominique, um, you know, your business was was one thing. And I feel like I've been watching you over the past year and the business has has really, really evolved. I mean, I, I'm, list, I'm watching, uh, you know, reporters uh, interview you and, and write about what you guys are doing. Um, you've been referred to as, quote, instrumental in shaping the next generation of sexual health tech brands that are entering the market. Um, that's pretty high praise. Tell tell everyone what you've been up to for the past year. Oh, that is quite high praise. And I have to say, I'm, I'm not doing it on my own. So um, are there credit? Not, none of us do. None yeah, of us do. Credit has to go to an incredible team. And yes, when we first spoke, it was really all about a collective of people that were working with myself having been in the space. And by this space, you know, we refer to it as sexual health and technology. Others may know it as sex tech or just femme tech or maybe far more dysfunction. But it was a collective of people that would come in and obviously we would work to assist brands, um, whether it was on a communication, education, innovation, investment, um, and now we've fast tracked and and COVID did have a lot to do with that. We were raised in a COVID era. Um, there's a lot to be said about that. But now we are actually the only global ecosystem that's dedicated to sexual health and tech. And what does that look like is 
our business, our group is now powered by five businesses. And so we have a full service um, advertising and marketing uh, agency, which specifically helps brand navigate a very digitally censored landscape, uh, which is a legal conversation we could have for hours and over a bottle of wine. We have our demand center, which is all about putting products at the right time, at the right place for people over and above a, a dark a dark alley in a brown paper bag, right? So the news is Bloomingdale's has <laughs> Bloomingdale's has its own sexual wellness shop these days, uh, Boots and Walgreens. So how do we propel and put those solutions out to consumers um, a lot faster and make it accessible? Then we have the lab, which is where I will share with you Probably everyone in the business likes to sit because it's where the real magic happens, where we develop IP um, and anywhere from an FMCG product like for vaginal dryness all the way through to a wireless penile implant. So talk about not nerding out. Trust me, we can nerd out on, on the lab. And then, of course, the fund, which is really the only fund that invests in sexual health and women's health technology startups. Again, never existed because it was considered vice in the investment industry. So our entire business is now geared for investment, uh, innovation, and education, which is the three real motors that will that have and will continue to fast track this industry over and above everything else we've seen like a global threat to humanity right that is making our industry really just implode uh so you mentioned uh the fund and i think i want to spend a, a moment talking about that because one of the areas that we chatted a lot about last year was sort of the difficulty in access to capital that a lot of these businesses that are truly technology businesses and the difficulties that they were experiencing raising money. Mm -hmm. um, now, back when we talked last time, we thought that was, and by we, I'm going to take a little bit of credit for your brilliant <laughs> thoughts. We, the, the royal we, uh, you know, thought that uh, those were really driven by two factors. One was what you just mentioned was the real categorization of these businesses as vice, whether or not they actually were or not, didn't matter. That was the bucket that they mm -hmm. were put in. But then the other part of it was just sort of the traditional um, diversity challenges that female founders have generally, regardless of the businesses that they're trying mm -hmm. to raise. Do you still that? Do you still see that as as a gap? Have have any of these other, um, you know, uh, venture capitalists or, or, or other funds, has anyone started to turn a corner or do you guys really have, have the market with this yeah. fund now? Um, so there's a few, a, a few things at play. The, the female founder funding is still uh, a really hot topic to talk about because we're still seeing not enough investment going into female founders. And that irrespective of what the category is, right. we're still only receiving a 0.02% of investment that happens in the billions. And that comes down to, you know, patriarchy, it comes down to parity, it comes down to this preconceived idea that women do business differently, right? And when we look to build relationships and collaborate, that's often seen as not a strong leadership. That's just one topic. I, I'm just, you know, handpicking one out. So we that's have a good one. It's one that we talk yeah. about all the time and it's still true. So and it's true. we'll on, just keep on, talking about it until something changes. On on every level of every business, we also but we have loads of case studies that that's proven wrong. But I it's really exhausting trying to prove 
those naysayers wrong when really all you have to do is just see the incredible impact that female founders make in this industry and the contribution we have to economies and GDP. So there's that conversation and we're not seeing enough movement in that, fair enough. When it comes to the vice topic and it comes to um, do I invest in, for example, audio erotica, right? A year ago, we would not have been talking about investing in audio erotica. Today, if you're not investing in audio erotica, you're missing out on an opportunity. And you're missing out on big opportunity in our space. Because there's so much, um, the demand that's coming in from the consumer has created this propensity for the market to have all these different categories. So whether you're a femtech and you're dealing with menopause, which is a $600 billion industry, um, much higher than your erectile dysfunction market, or you're looking at audio erotica, or you're looking at the femtech, which is just as a total, whether it's, you know, to do with menopause, whether it's to do with postnatal, whether it's to, to do with sexual health, it's going to sit at about $79 billion by 2027. And so what's happened is COVID, without dismissing the loss that I'm sure we have all on some level experienced, what it's done is it's put our health on our agenda. And now it's put female health on the agenda. And not only for the consumer, but for your different markets. So whether it's your, uh, you know, your Walgreens, whether it's your CVSs, whether it's, you know, um, your Bloomingdale's, knowing that there's the demand because women want products that will meet our demands and solutions means that they need to be on the other side of demand, which means they need to invest in innovation. So it could be menstrual, menstrual underwear, you know, again, a year ago, wasn't such a big conversation. Today it's global and it's expected. Most women expect to be able to go online and buy period underwear, right? We're going to be expecting to buy period Athletic wear soon. We want disposable incontinence underwear for when we're 80 that looks like our underwear now, not a nappy pull-up like it has been or is when you go into the store. So this propensity and drive from the consumer means that innovation is needed to be met. And for innovation to be met, investors have to wake up and realize that this is a fast track industry. It is, however, a fragmented industry. And when it's fragmented, uh, and we're a consumer brand and you add in technological innovation, digital innovation, it becomes really difficult to evaluate or evaluate it with meaning. And so what you'll start to see in the industry now is a lot of consolidation happening. So mergers and acquisitions, investment into brands around this femtech, medtech, consumer brands, which is great because without the consolidation, we don't fast track this industry. So we don't certainly at ASV or Amboy Street Ventures, we don't own the market. There's, there's a massive market to be owned. But what we can um, hope to gain by being the only uh, sort of fund investing in this space is that we'll get other investments or other funds to see that this is not a vice and therefore they will invest and really that's the aim is to fast track this investment so people can have solutions right at their fingertips setting trends so it, it's interesting because um you wouldn't i feel like this is so uh, uh exemplary of you know a female founded organization a female founded fund you're looking at these investments not only to 
build the business and get a return on your investment and help. But you want your funding to inspire other funds to simultaneously. So it's, I, I feel like it's such a selfless mission for a fund as opposed to so many other funds that you look at. They were like, we want to keep the market cornered. We want to keep the market cornered. We don't want other people investing in this space. It's our little secret. And then we can, you know, um, yeah. charge what we want to charge for, yeah. the, for, the well, privilege, mean, for the privilege of access to this capital. And you're sort of approaching it. It's like, nope, opposite. I, I want the opposite because if if I do this good, there will be greater goods and, you know, absolutely. rising I mean, tides raise all boats. I, I just think it's such a, it is a refreshingly and uh, unsurprisingly female approach to investing. I'm a GP and uh, Carly is the founding partner of of the fund. And yes, I mean, obviously we're a profitable business, but we want to be investor friendly and we want people, you know, I always love that in all the years I've uh, challenged this industry, uh, whether it's a cultural fiber, a religious or a policy or just a taboo outright based on people's um, belief patterns. It always fascinates me when people think that uh, it's a surprise. It's it's not because sex has been around. It's how we got here, sunshine. <laughs> and it's not going anywhere. It has survived the, te- the de- you know, even recession proof, it's survived. But we are now in a space where without it, we will not be able, without investment, we will not be able to put, especially, and while healthy pleasure doesn't discriminate, sex does not discriminate, but specifically for women, if we don't have that investment, it does not uh, help putting women's health as a priority on our agenda. And so you've almost got to have the pressure coming in from social change and then the pressure from behavioral change. It's like a sandwich effect, right? And we need to be able to do that in order to really make changes at the policy level. And so, um, yeah, we, we do what we can. And the more we shout out about it and the more we show that this is not as risky as some people would perceive. And that's a lot to do with their own belief patterns i have spent years talking to so many people who have just it's been a no for an hour and 45 minutes and if you uh listen long enough and carve a safe space more than likely 99 percent will share really what is the niggle point what's the friction point and it's usually a personal belief and that's why they don't want to explore more in the space so dominique uh now that we've sort of you've given us an overview of how you see COVID impacting what we're doing. We've talked about sort of the sandwiching effect, the pressures from not only, uh, you know, regulatory change, consumer behavior, investing, all of these things. So given all of that, what are the some, some of the most exciting projects that you guys are working on right now? Oh, the ones I can share. Um, yeah. So- <laughs> Confidentiality agreements and provisions yeah. here on um, Tech on Reg. So, yeah, I think I think let's take it by category because I think that's super exciting. People always ask me, what is the you know, what's the what's the next brand to watch or what is the next big thing in sexual health and tech? And I always ask, it's not what it's where. And so where are you going to encounter your sexual wellness or sexual health products? And so by this, I mean, there are verticals now that are now entering our space. And by entering, I mean they're working with us for research, product development through our lab, grooming. Male grooming is one of them. So uh, from beard to boner, right? <laughs> while, we have, while, while, 
Well, we have all, as women, you've decided just, that you've just, you've just, uh, titled, I the, the, interest. You've titled the episode, Dominique. I know I had a different title for this episode, but we're renaming the episode and the episode is now going to be named Tech on Rag Fall Season Opener from Beard to Boner with Dominique Carrizos. <laughs> and it's uh, like I've peaked interest now, but it's true. We're, no pun you know, intended. All pun intended in this um, But the, you know, we had this conversation before, and we said, right, this industry is moving into obviously mainstream. We know that it's moving into the beauty industry. The med tech private, the patient proposition brands are now wanting to be private propositions. So whereby you get like a biotech lab that now does is wanting to do or does. STI testing kits at home, they want a brand that is consumer. They want to empower people to uh, take autonomy of their bodies and their health. But if you're a medical brand and you're a patient proposition, how do you speak in consumer speak, right? How do you sell your product to the consumer on an everyday basis, provide them with education? So it's the different verticals and channels that we find are now incorporating sexual wellness as a category. They have given our industry the credibility and respect that is due. They're building P&Ls around it. Case in point, Bloomingdale's, while it had products that you could buy online, they have consolidated it. And an iconic brand like Bloomingdale's is now calling it the Sexual Wellness Boutique. You know, Boots or Walgreens, as you as you may know, has its own sexual wellness category. So no longer is it just family planning right, in the condom section, personal care in the tampon section, and porn. So you see these categories, because of how the demand is happening, it's proliferating, and we are having all these different categories. So grooming for men, whereby it's not just the beard, but to the boner, how do, how do these brands that are coming to us and saying, we want to incorporate sexual wellness products, we want to incorporate the ritual of self-care to include sexual wellness, what does that look like? How do we speak that language? How do we reshape that language? So that's super exciting for us. And especially because I come from the beauty industry, um, I'm super thrilled to see that happening. Then, of course, menopause. There's so much going on in the menopause um, innovation sector. Everywhere from um, there's brands uh, like cooling bracelets or, you know, where you can reset the temperature to your body to, to help you for those that uh, experience the symptom of overheating or, you know, uh, sweating. I know I suffered with it after I had my daughter. All the way through to, you know, Johnson & Johnson, I think just bought out a brand called Womaness. Again, very much in the FMCG cosmetic type products. All the innovation is, is, is heading in the right direction. But for example, menopause, there's a lot about menopause we don't know and not enough research is being done. And so we have to be really careful that we're not selling empty promises to consumers. You can't go and use a whole lot of creams and expect menopause just to be cured. Menopause isn't a disease. Menopause doesn't just last for a short period of time. For many women, it lasts longer than 10 years, right? And then there's the whole point the biggest, most exciting products that we work with is the education piece. So if you go and Google, if you're in Cyprus and you Google menopause, what is menopause? It will tell you that menopause is a symptom where after you can stop having babies, in other words, finish your period, right, of the age of your period finishing, 
If you have semen left over in your uterus, you will die. Oh, yes. That's an interesting perspective, this, Cyprus. This is the level. This is the level of education that is coming out. And so education is a huge piece that we work with, not only internally in Healthy Pleasure Group, but with all our brands. Again, so it's so funny. We have sex tech and then we have ed tech and now this is sex ed tech. Yeah. (laughs) Or some people would call it edutainment, but I'm not quite sure that's a classification (laughs) that might just be in the more sort of the soft erotica stories. (laughs) But yeah, you, you need the two together because we haven't had it ever right we, we we spoke about how you know having a you know non-judgmental safe space to explore and discover your sexuality said very few people if anyone ever so education is a big one um different verticals and working with uh, verticals that probably no one would have anticipated this happening so soon and then of course innovation that happens in our own lab because Dr Maria is you know she's a world renowned urologist and head of sexual medicine and i think counting now we have more than 15 ips that sits in our uh, in our lab Anywhere from, like I'd mentioned before, you know, from an FMCG all the way through to a wireless penile implant, uh, changing the ne- the game and changing the narrative around the use of products for, let's say, vaginal itchiness, which we know over a million women are, re- are asking or looking for online, all the way through to how do we change the game for surgeons when they're doing a vasectomy, right? And how do we make that a safer, although people consider it safe and short and sweet and non-intrusive, for the surgeon there is a slightly more more um, life-threatening process, right? And they have to be extremely skilled to do that. So how do we improve that process? And what does that innovation look like? So it's never a dull day. Um, of course, I'm big on the consumer. So any time that we can come up with and work with products that sort of just are real game changers. And then the other one, which I will have to choose my words very carefully, is working with CPGs. So the big CPGs, who, if you can look at them from a business entity, they're a little like banks, dare I say. (laughs) Corporate marketing team's going to kill me when I say this, but they've always been, they've always monopolized, right, the market. So I I would say, I I understand what you're saying, you know, the, we have the inertia effect doing the same thing that you've done for a long time and it's it's comfortable it's been profitable it's been working why change something why fix something that they believe is not broken um and sort of getting people comfortable with pushing themselves Mm -hmm. in a way and that it's literally the same conversation we have with banks about digital transformation and why to invest in fintech and and reg tech and and all of those other things it's same noodle, different sauce. That's what I. That's what I'd say about that. <laughs> and and there's one one slight dilemma is that a lot of the R and D teams um, might be more through a male lens, and are now you know like to their defence are having to come up with innovation and research for the female anatomy. And no one's ever had a conf- like there hasn't been research and education on how the female anatomy changes during different st- stages well, of our life. it sounds like you've made a case for diversification of those engineering and research <laughs> development teams, but that is the subject of another podcast. Um, yes. So, Dominique, as we're talking about the lab and all of the different product verticals, I've heard you describe things from sort of, I don't want to be glib and say simple, but more um, straightforward sort of uh, consumer consumer products 
all the way really to true medical device research mm-hmm. that, that you guys are doing in your lab. Um, we're, we're about to enter the nerdy part of the program. So I just, I just wanted to give you and listeners a heads up. I hear all of this. And, you know, I think about the analogies that we just drew to finance and banking. And to me, one of the more complicated areas uh, from a regulatory perspective mm-hmm. of these emerging, the emerging industry and the emerging verticals within the industry, because sex tech, like fintech, is comprised of all of these different verticals, such that mm-hmm. there's it's almost ten industries under one under one mm-hmm. umbrella for good reason. But the data and privacy considerations that I think about when talking about brands such as yours, you know. People are people are freaking out, out rightfully about you know the privacy related to bank account information and their credit scores and you know social security numbers and other personally identifying information. What we're talking about in your industry really really puts the personal and personally identifiable information. So mm-hmm. we've got this combination of traditional data privacy uh, considerations plus health information. Plus, I mean, what, what what would you call it? It's it, it's it if it's not necessarily health information, it's it's almost different. It's it's habit information, and it's it's information that is truly truly personal. What someone's likes and dislikes are with regards to you know an area of their life that we always knew Google Google knew what everyone was searching for, but now <laughs> all of these emerging brands are learning a whole lot about yeah. you your tastes, your health, your habits. Mm-hmm. Um, mm-hmm. And when we deal with, obviously, just the prolific amounts of data that we are creating just generally, and you add in these other concerns, how how much focus are the organizations that you're working with focused on that from a regulatory perspective? So the brands that we work with uh, or that sit in our ecosystem, brands like MyHexel, iPlaySafe, um, Daisy are incredible leader brands when it comes to understanding that the data of their customer is the most intimate and and not just because of what it's covering, you know, of the actual data, but of what the data represents. These are, this is information about someone. So if it's about premature ejaculation and how long I climax, whether my STI, my fertility tracking, these are topics that are innately intimate for us and are difficult even to communicate with an intimate partner, never mind having to see your own data about this information. When they and how they um, they work is that they invest quite heavily in sort of cybersecurity regulations. Um, it is on their priority for their agenda. And in fact, iPlaySafe uh, even delayed, I think they launched by a year to make sure that they were compliant with the upcoming speculated MDR regulations, mm-hmm. which is a hybrid of, of medical versus personal data. Right. So that weren't they weren't going to jeopardize themselves or their or their their customers down the line. And so when brands take those um those topics seriously, you can tell that they have a moral ethical duty and that it's on their agenda at all times. Brands like Mystery Vibe, for example, they were pioneering this conversation about tech and security five, six years ago. The CEO, Sumadeep, uh, there's a few, I think even a TED talk on just how important um, a data privacy is. 
Now, while it is incredibly important, and of course it needs to be on the agenda for those brands that are dealing with or taking, absorbing that information, there's always a level of um, there's always a level of risk, right? And there's also a level of, and now I'm going to be very controversial. Okay, so now someone knows what vibration setting you like your vibrator on, as opposed to Alexa probably knowing I should load more, right? Or Amazon knowing a lot more about what you purchase and what you buy. Um, and so there is, there is because it's such an intimate topic, it has such a bigger scare tactic. Oh, if someone knew. Now, if we're talking about, for example, being a member of Killing Kittens, which is, you know, really great female empowered sex parties or audio erotica, you know, which audio erotica I like to listen to because now that that maybe that information has been leaked. Um, those are sensitive topics. And I'm not, there's no one to, I'm not to say that, you know, um, it, it mustn't be taken care of. It mustn't be on the agenda. But I think also just a little bit of perspective needs to be well, placed so, on here. So it's funny. I'm going to take like sort of like a United States versus European uh, <laughs> divergent approach to this. So in the U.S. Um, puritanical culture that we are, that would that type of information, I think, to the average citizen would be like, oh, my God, I don't want anyone knowing that. However, the laws that we have in place in this country don't really actually protect any of mm -hmm. that in, any of that information. They're much more concerned about identity theft and, you know, banking information. And there is no right. There is no federal privacy law or federal data security standard, unlike what we have in Europe with the GDPR. So from that perspective, while our citizens might be much more like uncomfortable with that information being out in the world, they actually really aren't any laws on the books other than HIPAA and true health information that would qualify to protect it. Whereas in Europe, ironically, and correct me if I'm uh, being gen generalizing an entire population of people, the theme generally is, is that the European view when it comes to sex and vice is a little more relaxed than here in the United yeah. States. I don't think that's an overstatement. Um, right. But from a European point of view, data about a natural person's sex life actually falls squarely into that special categories of data uh, under both the current data protection framework and under the GDPR. So we have coverage. You guys have coverage. Americans don't. And ironically, I feel like an American would care a little bit more about that uh, disclosure of which vibration yeah. setting uh, we like than, you know, perhaps your average EU citizen. I don't know. I just find the, the dichotomy fairly ironic. I mean, I can't change the data laws in the US, but then no. I could encourage US consumers to buy more European brands. Because <laughs> your data will be better protected. There we go. <laughs> well, so, so the other thing that I find, uh, and I think we talked about a little bit about this a year ago, is that the regulation with regards to a lot of the devices in Europe actually are far more regulated than they are here in the US. When you're talking yeah. about regulations regarding the medical grade of products that are used uh, you know, for devices, those are all protections that, you know, uh, the FDA here in the United States has not implemented in any material or effective way. Yeah. Um, so, you know, you walk in, yeah. you walk into a lot of stores here and it's just sort of like a mm -hmm. wall of a wall of mystery. Yeah. 
I mean, there's some, you know, our industry as such as a regulation, just data aside, um, still has a really long way to go. Sure. Except for for those categories that have been well established, like lube and condoms, for example. So a lubricant, for you to launch a lubricant in in Europe and when, you know, we won't talk about Brexit, but when uh, the UK was part of Europe, um, I'm not upset about it at all. Of course not. Um, You have to have a CE marking for every single country that you're wanting to sell in. You can't just make a lube and then sell it to Germany, France, and Italy. Right. And so regulations have to take place for each and every country. Now, one could t- t- speak about commercially how that can be quite a hindrance. Uh, you just don't get the growth that you need. And, and, and you know, you've got 30 months, right. 30 lengths. Exactly. Whereas the US, you know, has the numbers and therefore you're able to fast track that growth. But from a regulatory perspective, you know, one has to also really appreciate that they are in place because each market is different. And it does bring a quality control and a regulation to something that is you are using and putting inside your body, right? Ding, ding, ding. Um, I was about to say you can regulate that all day, every day. No, no, I mean, no complaints over here. And I think that Um, you know, I don't want to say they're loopholes because they're not even loopholes. You just don't have, you just don't have the laws on the books to, to regulate Mm -hmm. a lot of these, a lot of these types of products, which I think can be terribly scary and potentially very harmful for Mm -hmm. something that you're using inside adjacent to on your, on your person, on your body, right? Yeah, and we 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 will hopefully see quite um, some innovation happening, and I know it happens in our lab. But when it comes to sourcing and materials, because you know, four or five years ago, when a brand said it's medically grade silicone, um, for example, we all got excited because we'd now moved on from the rambit rabbit that was PVC and and detrimental to our cervix. Um, now we're expecting something else. You know, how are we replacing lithium batteries, for example? What are we doing about that? What's going on? What materials can we use that are biodiverse and environmentally friendly? We still have a way to catch up. And so a lot of those regulations also need to be put in place to really encourage brands to think outside the box um, and and invest. And right now, everyone is still excited about the hype and that there's this demand and everyone wants to be on the other side of the demand. The brands that will be around for longevity will the, will be the brands that take and put their data policies and privacies on it, on their agenda as a priority, along with things like regulations, material sourcing, you know, for the future. Um, because if they don't, the one thing we know for sure is when innovation and, and consumer demand escalates, it becomes, you know, a eat, eat, what's, what's the thing, eat by eat or like the doggy, 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 doggy dog. <laughs> I've messed that up, but you you get my point. Um, it's it's going to be a competitive, noisy marketplace, and not everyone's going to be around. So I think final topic for today's episode mm-hmm. is I'm really interested in your perspective on uh, AI and sex tech. What are you mm-hmm. seeing as, so AI, particularly with the new EU proposed regulations of artificial intelligence, um, you know, how are how are you seeing those two uh, areas sort of uh, convening? 
So AI, as far as AI content and education, is a is a big player in our space. Using that AI to really extrapolate and offer education, because as we know, education alone is in our space for sexual health and technology is already a $250 million industry. We haven't had any, right? And so AI obviously facilitates that. I have questions around that um, because your output is dependent on your input. And when you have to look at the source of your input, sure. one has to query whether or not that that is the most accurate. But there's a lot of brands that are building their market share or, or claiming their real estate based on AI content. When I look at AI and I look at it from the Healthy Pleasure Group perspective, it is a core competency in our lab for AI 3D printing. Okay. Now, AI 3D printing is is uh, if you know a little bit about the, if you've heard the hearing aid industry, so AR 3D printing is traditionally known as something that can reduce your prototype costing when you're developing products and innovation. And in our space, where we are the mercy of most uh, Chinese, right, or, or manufacturers in Hong Kong, it really is is a challenge. And so we need to be able to reduce our costs. We need to be able to have um, as accurate as possible when it comes to devices. But also, especially in our lab, when we develop our products, our products don't come with as necessarily software. They don't come with apps because a lot of our products deal with the starting point around sexual health. And that means they have to be anatomically accurate. So when something is anatomically accurate, AI 3D printing can provide that. So now, a little like the hearing aid industry, where they started off with AI 3D printing for prototype, have now moved the entire finished product to AI 3D printing. And that has reduced their costs, increased their ability to make bespoke hearing aids. Now, I'm not I'm just using it as an as an industry category to show where it can go. So if what I are we, what, what are we gonna print, Dominique? Well, you what are we gonna print? That's what I want to no, know. Do you know when um not fax machines, you know, when uh, uh, printers, um, copiers first came out and you, you, I'm sure I probably, I don't know, when was that? The seventies, maybe uh, people would have been all excited and then done really stupid things like printed their butts or their boobs. You can only imagine people what we all want to AI 3D things. print in our lab, right? So uh, I, I cannot deny or confirm <laughs> that any forms of nipples or processes have been AI 3D printed. However, it is definitely a core competency and one that we as a business are growing quite rapidly. But here, if they do want to print any of those things, now we know they will be anatomically accurate. If they do it properly, yes. Perfect, perfect. <laughs> um, all right, Dominique, we're nearing the end of our time together. Um, so really appreciate your perspective on what sort of sex tech in 2021 looking like. Um, I always like to ask you this question because then I get to come back and ask you whether or not any of your predictions came true. But, um, you know, we've seen such massive change over the past 12 months since you and I sat down together. What do you think the next 12 months are going to look like? Um, I definitely think uh, telehealth is on the rise. And so sure. this digital healthcare uh, is going to boom from a category perspective. I also believe that us as humans, majority of us who have given ourselves the social permission to include sexual wellness in our life, are going to invest more in exploring and discovering that. And I believe that sexual wellness and sexual health care is going to be reshaped uh, from a both 
an online pers- experience, but also from a very physical, tangible perspective in stores. I think in the next 12 months, we're going to see a lot of growth and movement in in real life form as the world begins to open up again, where people will hopefully wish to satisfy their curiosity because curiosity was the drive very much during COVID. And I don't think that's going anywhere. And satisfaction is often a tangible thing. It's not just uh, a digital. And so, and connecting people wish to connect again. And so I think that's also going to drive how we incorporate our digital healthcare into our lives again. Well, thank you so much. Uh, great predictions. We'll definitely make sure to check back with you to see to see what's come <laughs> to fruition. Um, congratulations on the past year, your growth, all of the really, really important work um, that you and your partners are doing. Can't wait to see what comes out of the lab. Can't wait to see what you guys start printing. Um, and just thank you so much for your time. And you'll definitely be back. You don't even have a choice anymore. I, I can't wait. And thank you always for giving us a platform to talk about it. It's always a pleasure, Dara. Absolutely. Have a good one, everyone. Thanks for listening. And we will see you guys next time.